All right. Welcome, everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, Episode 6. So I'm really excited about this one. I think we have a lot of fun things to discuss. Um, you know, I just continued to rip through some of the Alan Watts archives, and I continue to marvel at his ability to really capture a lot of those pointers, the pointers that we look to that are pointing us towards the moon, the things that are trying to help us, in a sense, stop helping ourselves, <laughs> ironically. So without further ado, let's just read some of his stuff. As you could say again, putting it into Western terms, if God could explain how he created the universe, he wouldn't be God. And you know how in the book of Genesis, it's told so straightforwardly that when the Lord first of all creates the things and then looks at them afterwards and sees that they're good, right? Vayad Elohim Kitov. And you know, I love the passage where suddenly he creates great wells, you know, suddenly great wells, whoops, like that. And he looks at these things and says, my, that's great. Do it again. So in this way, there's a Zen poem which says, you may want to ask where the flowers come from, but even the God of spring doesn't know. And another says, planting flowers to which the butterflies come, Bodhidharma says, I don't know. So there's this curious thing in all, what I would call vital knowledge, living knowledge, that it's always a mystery to itself. Life is a mystery to itself. For the same reason you see uh, that there's a Zen poem which says, it is like a sword that cuts, but does not cut itself. Like an eye that sees, but does not see itself. And he's saying life is like that. And to give you a little context about this, what does this mean? That uh, you may want to ask where the flowers come from, but even the God of spring doesn't know. To me, it's very connected with the idea of first there is summer, then there is fall. That's it. It's not that the summer becomes the fall or that the spring becomes the summer. It's first there is spring, then there is summer. Joe is a big friend of this, a big fan of this idea. Um, and to me, that's really what it's about, is not connecting the links in the chain. We always, very often, we compare it to consciousness to like a freight train, right? And we say, uh, when you do psychotherapy, you're trying to detach each baggage that you have, each cart in the freight train say oh i want to be lighter i want to be lighter but with taoism with zen you can uncouple the engine car from all the other cars all the other freight cars all at once that's the key drop everything in this moment that's what it means and that's what it means when we say it's not that spring becomes summer it's first there is spring then there is summer. So first there is this moment, and now there's this one, and now there's this one. Don't connect them. Just be present in each one. And that's what it means to escape karma, I think, right? Because if karma is created by your view of the past and the future, drop those. Be so fully present in this one, in this moment now that you don't even need to think about how the past created this moment or the possible future implications that this moment can have. 
All right, so that's the first section. Now, here's one of my favorites from Alan Watts. Another story told about this is the story of the woodcutter and the animal. The animal's name was Satori. Satori means sudden enlightenment. There was once a woodcutter working in a clearing in a forest when he saw a strange animal peeking at him from behind a bush. And thinking to have this animal for dinner, he rushed at it with his axe. And the animal left from the opposite side of the clearing because this animal had the power to read thoughts. And therefore, wherever the woodsman intended to go, the animal read his thought first. And so the animal began to talk and mocked him and said, you think I'm going to be in this place next? Because the woodsman naturally thought, when I see him next, instead of going where, to where he is, I'll go to the opposite side of the clearing. And so this went on until the woodsman got absolutely furious. And he returned to chopping the wood. And the animal laughed and said, so you've given up. And just at that moment, as he winged the axe against the tree, the head flew off and struck the animal dead. That's the way you have to attain Zen. By accident is what he's saying. Right. So to me, this is one of my favorite stories because this animal who is Satori, who is that which you're looking for, but is part of you. It knows you want to overcome it, but it is you. And therefore, it could read your mind. You can't overcome it because you are it. So what do you do? You keep trying because you can't help but try. You can't help but try to chase this thing. That's the woodsman trying to eat this thing for dinner. You cannot help but try to attain enlightenment. That's your natural disposition. You're trying all the time. We're all trying all the time. But the point of Zen is to beat the stuffing out of you, as Alan Watts would say, to the degree where you become so furious and so sick of trying, you say, I give up. And you go back to just doing what you would have been doing anyway. And then, boom, it happens by accident. That's the way it has to be. Right? What if it doesn't happen? So be it. <laughs> what if? Yeah, man, it's... uh. It's one of those things that I think it's inevitable. That's I don't know, but it it doesn't even pay for me to speak any more words about yeah. that because anything I say is just going to be totally null and void anyway. Apply time. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's just time. exactly, exactly. All right. Very good. Um, here's another one. There was a master walking in the forest with a group of his disciples, and suddenly he picked up a tree branch and said to one of the monks. What is it? And the monk hesitated. He didn't answer immediately. So the teacher hit him with it. So he turned to another monk and said, What is it? And the monk said, Give it to me so that I can see. And the master tossed him the branch. He caught it and hit the master with it. And so the master said, Well, you got out of that dilemma. Right? So this story is a classic Zen interaction. Right, where you want to state something about reality. And this is the challenge of Zen. Let's put this into words. Anything. 
put this water bottle into words. Put this this branch, this tree branch into words. Any attempt to do so, like I was just telling Joe about the other thing, right? What if it never happens? Any attempt to verbalize anything, like I'm doing right now, <laughs> is a joke. Because it will never, ever do justice to that thing, ever. And that's what Zen is trying to help you realize. But it's these almost hilarious, funny, spontaneous things that people do that are best able to capture what Zen is about. The Zen experience of immediacy and spontaneity. And that's what it means when he grabs the stick and he hits the master with it. It's like, I bet you didn't expect that, right? Here's another one. There was another occasion where an officer of the army came to a Zen master and said, Sir, I've heard a very strange story, and I want to know your answer to it. Once upon a time, there was a man who kept a goose in a bottle. And it grew so large that he couldn't get it out. Now, he didn't want to break the bottle, and he didn't want to hurt the goose. So how did he get it out? And the master changed the subject and said something like, you know, it's a nice day today, isn't it? The waterfall's making a lovely sound outside. And so they went on in pleasant conversation. And then the officer got up to leave. And as he walked away to the door, the master said, oh, officer. And he turned around and said, yes. And the master said, there, it's out. All right, so this is a mysterious one, All right? A, a goose in a bottle. How do you get the goose out of the bottle? It grew too big. He doesn't want to break the bottle. He doesn't want to kill the goose. How do you get it out? Right. And they also say similarly, how could it be that a, you could fit an entire camel through the head of a pin or the hole in the pin? You know, like the hole where you thread the needle. And I think there's something to be said or not said about when you're so present in this moment. You can see how something too large is able to fit in something too small, right? How could something so small as this finite little moment contain infinity of moments and all of space-time? Somehow it does. But the point is, you have to be distracted, right? That's kind of that. That's the irony of this year. Is if, you know, the watched pot never boils here. This officer is trying to think about it. He's trying to pay attention to this bottle, to this dilemma, using his analytical reasoning. How do I do it? And the answer all along was, don't try. Let it be. Let it somehow happen of itself. But again, you know, even me, my attempt to explain it is like somebody explaining a joke. It almost ruins the joke. So that's why I, I I try to pause a little bit for it to just be the story, and then we could talk a little bit about it. But uh, here, there's, a, there's another good one. Another time, there was a famous master called Suibi, and he was asked, what is the secret teaching of Buddhism? And he was asked this in the, in the lecture hall, you know, where the other monks were studying, and he said, wait until there's no one around, and I'll tell you. So later in the day, the monk accosted him and said, there's nobody around now. What is the secret teaching of Buddhism? So he went into the garden with this monk, and he pointed at the bamboos. Right, That was his answer. 
And the monk said, I don't understand. He said, what a tall one that is. What a short one that is. And this awakened the monk. In other words, another way that it's been said or written, this is the tall arm of the Buddha. This is the short arm of the Buddha. That's all it is. That's what it is. Just what is. What a tall one that is, what a short one that is. With people, it's the same thing. When you, you know, we talk about going, get us back to the time of old, the time before we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, before we started seeing the world in terms of this goodness and evil, in terms of morality constantly. We look at people and we're constantly evaluating and on the psychological plane, the personality plane, the emotional plane, the morality plane, people and things, ideas all the time, always, everywhere. Zen is saying, Moon River, right? That's what I think of. The, the beautiful song by uh, Louis Armstrong and uh, Frank Sinatra has a great version. Moon River, wider than a mile. I've, I'm crossing you in style someday, right? That's just what it is. It's just moon, river, and me. That's it. It's just what is. So you're walking around the street. If you're really in that Zen mindset, it's okay. You let the, you let the thoughts come and go. But it's just the sidewalk, the tree, the fence, the water bottle, the person, the tall one. The fat one, the short one, the skinny one. It just is. And that's seeing the world clearly in terms of quote-unquote emit and shake it, right? Just what is. Then there was another monk whose name was Gute. And whenever people came to ask him a question about Buddhism, he'd hold up a finger. That was the only answer he'd give. Well, he had an attendant. And one day somebody came to the temple to inquire about the teaching being given there. And the master was apparently out and his attendant was there. So the investigator said, what is your teaching here? And the attendant held up a finger. Well, actually, the master had been there. He was peeking from behind a screen. So he saw his attendant copying him with this answer to what is the secret of Buddhism? What is the teaching of Buddhism? And so he came out to this boy and said, right, so the master now is coming out to, to the attendant and seeing him. And he says, what's the fundamental teaching of Buddhism? And the boy held up a finger. Instantly, the master drew a knife and cut it off. It's just a story. Don't worry. <laughs> and the boy was very dismayed and rushed away yelling. So the master said, hey, come back. So he came back and he said, the master said, what's the fundamental principle of Buddhism? And he went to hold up the finger, and it wasn't there. And he was enlightened. That's a wacky one, huh? It's a very wacky one. But I, I like that one because we were just talking about what's there, what's there. I'm saying the sidewalk, the tree, the person, the, the fence. In a way, this is what we're doing with this finger. What we're saying, what, what's the fundamental principle of Buddhism? You can just notice, oh, the finger. Are you pointing to somewhere? Or you... No, just the finger. But 
when it gets cut off and you expected something to be there, but it wasn't. I think that's a big part of this for, for, for my understanding is that there is the something of reality all around us all the time. We're always engrossed in the something. But did you notice where it's all coming from? All this something has behind it the nothing. That which cannot be put into words. And every moment, it's not, it's not even something that you have to realize after you die. It's something that is constantly wishing into and out of existence, I would say. Baruch Abad to ID, welcome. Still doing some Zen stuff. Welcome, welcome. You got Zen? You're Zenning? We're Zenning up. <laughs> the Tao, the Tao, the Tao. Right. That's right. Get ready for this one. I, well, by the way, you came for the best story. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> you, know, you know what I always, the, the, the thing is, timing is the key to life. That's exactly right. Everyone, what do you got for me? What do you got? Ping, ting. No time but the, but the present. So uh, I was just just closing up this story that the idea being in every given moment, even on a physical level, reality is waves, waves of crests and troughs and crests and troughs. And it's almost vibrating into existence at all moments. But we're only noticing the upper level of the of the wave, right? The, the, the crests. But the whole time, if you could slow it down, slow it down, turn the knob to this moment, and I look into the camera at ID's eyes, and it's just this moment. And you start to notice the nothingness that brings about the somethingness in every moment. Then everything becomes a surprise. And then everything, be it was always a surprise. Exactly. I think I think the big issue being the fact that I'm a baby boomer that yeah. that you, that time time can't be relevant. Mm -hmm. That's that you, you can't, you know, at any age it can't be relevant because like you say it's in the moment, you know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So you when you say relevant, yeah, what do you mean? Meaning that in other words, if you're 16, if you're 6, if you're 60, if you're 90, yeah. If you have an attitude uh, that that like you say, but all these positive things, like a guy just passed away. He's he was renowned in the world of investment, Charlie Munger. I don't know if you ever heard of him. I've heard of him. Right. So he was ninety nine. He just passed away last week. He was Warren Buffett's guy partner for sixty five years. Mm -hmm. which took a little company and made it a trillion dollar com trillion dollar company. Yeah. And his his thing was. The same thing the other day when I saw a, a, like a whole documentary on him is that it's the now, it's the people, it's all these things. And it's funny that the Asian society, whether it's Buddhism or it's Japanese or they, they, these guys, they must have some kind of a formula because they lift up one, 110, 120, 130. And everybody in America is like 6070, you know, what's going on? <laughs> You're 100% right. I think about everything you're saying. And, and I love that mindset because it doesn't matter what age you are. You're always going to feel like it's now. And b by the way, I'll, 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 I'll up the ante with what you're saying, ID, which is it doesn't even matter if you're a human being. 
But if you're an, an animal or you're an ant or you whatever the heck you are, you're a bacterium, you're a protist, you have some degree of experience. You might call it consciousness or self. We have self-consciousness, but it's very likely that almost all organisms or maybe even things that we think of as inanimate maybe have some degree of consciousness, not self-consciousness necessarily, but consciousness. There's this theory of panpsychism, um, you know, but that's what's amazing is. No, no. The truth, Mikey, that what you're saying, because you are the shrink, the Rambam, you're, you're Jewish, you're this, you're but if you think of it now, you just lit up, you just put a light on my that. Why do they do these? They do these lab tests on animals and then they relate them to a human. So yeah. obviously there's something going on there. hundred percent. Right? A hundred percent. It's it's all interrelated. We're much more similar than than you would realize. So I do get ready for this story. You ready for this one? I'm 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 holding on. <laughs> Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. There's a Chinese god whose name is Ping Ting, and this is the god of fire. And there was a monk who was traveling, and he came to a new master. He had been to someone else, and he said, well, who did you study with before you came to me? Oh, he said, I studied with so-and-so. He said, what did he teach you? Well, he said, when I asked about the fundamental meaning of Buddhism, he answered me, Ping Ting comes for fire. Well, the master said, that was an excellent answer but I bet you didn't understand it. Oh, yes, he said, I understood it. Because Ping Ting is the god of fire. And if Ping Ting should ask for fire, that would be like me asking about Buddhism. Because I'm really a Buddha already. Wow. The master shook his head. I knew it, he said. You missed the point completely. Well, he said, how would you deal with it? The master said, you ask me. The monk said, right, so the monk says, what is the fundamental principle of Buddhism? And the master said, pink thing comes for fire. And the monk got the point. That's the story. Dr. Nasser. Ah, man, sorry. Uh, uh, don't worry, don't worry. We're, this is, a, if you want to read this one, as a, it's an interesting one. So so what do you guys, what do you guys make of this one? This is one of my favorites. I don't understand it at all. You really? Ah, ah. <laughs> that's oh, good. That's a good, good answer. Get out of here. It cheers me up immensely. <laughs> Joe said, "I don't understand it at all, but it cheers me up immensely." I love that. That's that's a that's a very good answer. In uh, in a monastery, they might hit you with the stick, though. I don't know. <laughs> so be it. Probably deserve it. Come what may. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, this is the joke because right now I'm gonna attempt to explain. The story which says that when you explain koans, you don't get them. So maybe I should just be quiet now. I think we should all go home. That's it. I think I'm going to stop the recording. Anyone listening on Spotify, I'm sorry that it was only 20 minutes today. Um, but I think we've done our part. No, I'm only kidding. But uh, Joe, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> but the point being, it's pointing out the irony of all this because... Everybody knows Ping Ting comes for fire is the basic explanation of, well, it's the equivalent of um, trying to, a, a, a naked man trying to remove his own shirt or um, b banging on a drum in search of a fugitive 
or riding on an ox in search of an ox, right? It's trying to get that which you think you don't have, which you already do have. So if you and I sit around the rest of the class and we're all of the intention to become either more educated or more enlightened or somehow better or more refined with the rest of the class, we would be missing the point entirely. And the point of this class is not to make you better. It's not even to enlighten you. It's not to enlighten me. It's not to make anything improve necessarily. I mean, that might happen, but it's not, not the point. The point is the class itself, just like everything else in existence. The point is we do it because it's fun. Like we play baseball because it's fun, right? There's no point in the game. And if you're playing the game in order for your ego to be propped up, and if you're playing the game because you want to get the girl impressed at how you hit a home run, well, you're not really playing baseball at that point. You're playing some egotistical game. You're not really enjoying baseball. Yeah, you're playing something else. Exactly. And and the point of these koans, I think, is really to get us in that mindset of how much fun is this? You know, just to hear the koan and let it sit and just see what it's pointing to all this time. All this time that we were searching. It was there all along. All right. Now, a couple of words about the Joker. So uh, we've, we've all been brought up in, you know, yeshivot and different types of, you know, experiences. And I always say as a proviso, you know, like, I, I think it's very important to be able to relate to God as a father figure, as a parent, as a teacher, uh, all of the above, as a guide. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of virtue in being able to not hold on to the idol of God as those things. And once you realize that there are multiple ways of relating to God, you say, wow, this is expanding my understanding of the universe and my my capability to appreciate these things. So one thing I, I wanted to tell you guys is like one of my litmus tests is for people, you say to them, how do you react to the notion if somebody tells you there is a God? Notice the inner reaction that that gives you. What about when somebody tells you there is no God? What is the inner reaction to that? Well, in Zen, they would tell you, probably, it's not about concepts. Stating definitively there is a God or there is a meaning to life externally or whatever you're saying, that's a concept. But then to say, oh, okay, then there is no God. Or there is no meaning to life. That's also a concept. And the irony is, if you say everything is meaningless, then that statement is, is meaningless too. So it's an unbelievable opportunity to have an insight into ourselves. And to say, hmm, I just want to notice. When somebody tells me it's all meaningful, everything means something, does that make me feel good or bad? Well, for me, it's both. Sometimes I feel really good about that. And sometimes I get pretty scared. Like, wow, some, everything means something? That's a little, a little much, you know? Like everything means something that it has to be towards me, towards my ego. Oh, and then what about the idea of the concept of a God, of a separate God, of a separate God who is judging and 
But what if instead of saying there is a God, there is God, which is the ability of the, the equivalent of saying there is Zen or there is Tao or there is Buddha. That's the equivalent of saying there is God as opposed to there is a God. But then to say there is no God. what? So just notice the reactions that you have towards those things. And instead of trying to argue with people and put into words that which cannot be put into words, just try to notice and say, what's comforting to me or what's bothering me about one of these statements? Neither of which can ever do justice to reality, right? Let's talk a little bit about the Joker. So Alan Watts says he's been discussing the role of a certain person called the Joker, the Joker being the one who has insight into the fact that all, all our social institutions are games. The social game is played with an initial rule. The first rule being this game is serious or this game is not a game. And therefore, there's a tendency within society to resist very strongly any notion that what it is doing is not altogether serious. And at a still deeper level, beneath the level of social institutions, there is also the recognition on the part of the Joker that the basic forms of nature are also games. The human game, the rabbit game, the mouse game, the bee game, the tree game, the stone game. Because all these are forms of a musical nature. That is to say, they are forms played for themselves. They are played in the most intimate interconnection and interrelationship with each other but they don't have any purpose beyond what is happening in the same way as music and dancing. So you and I sitting here in this class, like I said earlier, this is the game we're playing right now. This is fun. It should be. At least I'm having fun. I don't know about you guys. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it's fun. And that's the thing. And yeah, it'll have whatever consequences it has. Just like the chipmunks eating their acorns has its consequences, but it's just the chipmunks eating the acorns. The same way Symphony Number no. 40 by Mozart is just Symphony Number no. 40, right? This is the Joker. He says, but when people take games seriously, and part of the fun of a game, you must remember, is to take it seriously, they acquire an attitude which strikes the Joker as being half funny and sometimes a little pitiful. A good Joker is inclined Really, not to laugh at people because if a person is terribly seriously involved in the sense of the kind, the person we call colloquially a square, right? Somebody who takes everything seriously. The Joker feels sorry for them because they, they live a deprived life. But the point is that he is the one who is a wild man, which is to say he has no fixed role. He can play, as the Joker can in the deck of cards, any role. And in a way, in that sense, all of us are roles of the Joker. Because the real Joker, of whom any human Joker is a manifestation, the real Joker is Brahman, is the ultimate player of the game, is God, right? The divine ground of the universe. So then if you look upon the world as play, as what the Hindus call the Vishnu Lila, Vishnu being one of the names of God and Lila meaning sport or play, right? So everything according to the Hindus is just the sport or play of Vishnu, from which we get our word lilt, lilt. The word lilt comes from that, which I think is like a musical word, um, or like lilting voices, right? Then Vishnu or Brahman is the big joker. And anyone who realizes this is the little joker. And the art of the joker is very paradoxical because it is to give the show away that it is a game and yet to keep the show going on. 
there is something about a joker of a now you see it, now you don't character. So that even when somehow you find in studying all these Hindu and Buddhist texts, that when they're discussing one's awakening to the very final secret, somehow there is the feeling of, well, what did we get? Because you step into a new dimension. You see from the standpoint of this sort of awakening that really and truly you were awakened all the time. Hmm. I love this. Why, yeah. why, why is the Joker assigned to this project? So why is it the Joker? Well, you answer me that, ID. <laughs> I'm going to put you <laughs> on the spot. But ID, are you really Erwin Dan? Is that who you really are? Or are you really God playing this part as if you're little old Erwin Dan? Right. But really, in reality, where does the boundary between what you think you are and the rest of the universe end? Right? There is no real boundary between you and the rest of the universe. No, the whole concept is no boundaries, right? Exactly. You are everything in space and in time. You didn't begin. What year were you born? In uh, 19... I'm sorry, that's that. 21, 22? (laughs) (laughs) Let's say I'm a a baby boomer. Yeah, exactly. So you're a baby. So let's say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But I, ne- I never let age define me. You know that. <laughs> I love my, it. My, it. My friends are from two to eighty-two. ID, I love you. So basically, I would say for myself, I didn't begin in nineteen ninety-five, even though that was the year I was born. But all the events leading up to nineteen ninety-five created the ability for my dad and my mom to conceive me. And if it wasn't <laughs> that way, it wouldn't be. That. And the same thing with in space. Am I this physical body here? Well, if you took me and put me in a just in a tube somewhere, right. I would die. So right. you imply the rest of the universe in space right. and in time. So for the sake of disclosure, yeah, you definitely have no boundaries. And when you say when your mother held you when you were a kid, when she held you, she gave you over to me to hold you. I, uh, so, I love it. <laughs> and I saw that talent in you. That sits today. Wow, wow. I do. I love you. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> it means a lot. Yeah, when I was born, I, I almost died, actually. I had um, I was born prematurely, and um, uh, the, the doctors didn't take proper precautions, and they gave uh, me RSV, you know, this respiratory syncytial virus, and I almost died, and, like, it really it shaped a lot of my life. Uh, we dobbin, you know, we a yeah, lot in those you days. You guys dobbin a lot. I know my uncle Joey tells me all the time. Everyone tells me. We were dobbing 24-7. When you yeah. came home, wow. we were dancing in the street. Alhamdulillah. And you know, my, my grandpa told me he didn't even want to come visit me in the hospital because he would pick up my arm and boom, it would fall out. He thought I was mooting. That's it. He said, tell us this good is done. And uh, yeah, I, somehow I, you know, Hashem pulled pulled the strings and I'm I'm here to tell the story. But it's amazing what that narrative you know how it shaped me in, in in a lot of beautiful ways like my mom always told me you know Hashem saved you so you could you could save others and you can help others and like it really created a nice narrative for me it's a beautiful thing I like that yeah. it's a beautiful thing and and it really it's like it, it, it like really is close to my heart um and the whole this whole thing with the, of the Joker is like this whole time you are playing this game as if you can die. You believe 
that it's possible for you to die. But the joke is, the grand joke, as we're going to see, is that that's not the case. Let's read a little bit more and see what he's talking about. Alan Watts. Yeah, it's still quoting different quotes from Alan Watts. So the last thing we said is that you have this realization that you were awakened all the time. He says, imagine you're going through a gate and a wall. Here is this great barrier. You walk through it, you turn around, and the wall and the gate have both disappeared. And you see, you were always there. One of the most extraordinary things that happens in entering into a mystical state of consciousness, one of the most delightful things about it is the discovery that you don't have to stay in ecstasy. That ordinary consciousness is all right, too. In other words, nirvana is samsara. Sorry, nirvana meaning the state of ecstasy, samsara being the state of suffering and the, the wheel of birth and death. That ordinary consciousness is all right, too, that that is part of the whole total fitness of things. You see that everybody is, as it were, right in the place where he stands. Imagine a pearl necklace, how it's arranged. Down in the center, they put the big pearls, and then they trail off slowly until there are very tiny pearls in the, at the back. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a big pearl or a little pearl. You all constitute the harmony of the whole. So they say in Zen Buddhism, a long thing is the long body of Buddha. A short thing is the short body of Buddha. Or in the spring scenery, there is nothing superior, nothing inferior. Flowering branches grow naturally, some short, some long. So from that standpoint, you see, everybody is seen to be a perfect manifestation of the Godhead or of the void, whatever you want to call it, everybody. And even though the very fact that they don't know it, and even the very fact that they don't know it, and that they're unhappy, that they quarrel, etc., 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 is still a manifestation of this. And he has the, really the next part of this quote that I didn't bring you is that you you constantly have this fear that you are going to be overcome, that that you, as you conceive yourself, are finite and will die and will have an end to your story. And you're terrified by this. So what's the joker? The joker is this experience right here. You walk through that gate in the wall, that gate in the wall being death, I think, the great barrier, you walk through it and you turn around and you say, whoa, the wall and the gate have disappeared and I was always there. And it was impossible for me to ever cease to be. It was impossible for me to ever really die. And the joke is that this is the funniest thing you can ever conceive of. Because what is humor? Humor is the expectation being totally ripped up in your face. Right? It's, it's you know, uh, I, I, there's so many dirty jokes that I can tell. I'm not going to tell them. But you, you start off a sentence in a certain way. And then, boom, it hits you in a different way. So you expected this whole time that death was imminent, that death was coming for you. And in the end, surprise, it didn't. Because you really, as you really are, can never die. And the joker is the one who reveals himself to have been joking the whole time. Joking in what sense? 
joking and pretending that he was limited or that she was limited or that reality was finite in some way. Right. That really it was infinite the whole time. I, I can see the connection to, to the Joker now, uh, you know, being like the CEO of this deal mm. in the sense that if you look at the great, if the great, if you look at the great comedy writers, yeah, their tragedy, their crisis, their, their, they, 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 they extracted humor from it all. If exactly. you look at the, like from Mel Brooks to Woody Allen to Neil Simon to Sid Caesar, it goes on and on and on. The Larry Gelbart, all the great writers, the comedy writers, they all had that against the tide, against the crisis, against every, and they were able to bring it about. So I think the joke is the right guy for this deal. That's exactly right. ID, you're hitting, you're hitting the nail. The, the, the comedians and the jokers right. are so often the ones who are doing this. They are the ones in society who have transcended taking things seriously, right? Like David's doing, right? It's it's if you're able to do that, you're on a different plane and people will, will see that. And they'll want that. And you kind of have to, if you want to maintain whatever it is, that lack of seriousness, ironically, you you can't allow that adoration or that, you know, that ego building to stand in the way of what led you to that ability in the first place. So it actually leads me very much into, uh, we'll save this quote for next time. I'll give you guys just the, the the glimpse of it. The psychotic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight. Maurice was telling me about it a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we'll discuss that next time. But I want to go to the Zohar now because, um, you know, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> uh, we'll get into it. Well, no, we'll, 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 we're saving it for next time. I wanted to leave a little cliffhanger for this part of the class, but that's a great one. So we're gonna we're gonna switch into heebie-jeebie now. Now we're gonna switch into heebie-jeebie. Here it comes. I D. I D. I love it. I love it. He's my guy. They love you, or I D. You know, you're a fan favorite on the podcast. I just want you to know that. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Nasser too. I get. I get people. Me and my brother are both three years old. Two to eighty-two. <laughs> so so let's do a little a little of the heebie-jeebie stuff. Last time we 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 left off with something um where I didn't fully get the chance to explain and I was just saying this this idea of infinity and how the joker is able to see past the finite into the infinite. And I think the Zohar was really doing this for us last time. It was discussing Shabbat and the idea of Shekhinah came up. I, uh, Dr. Nasser, you were you were telling us about this also, that you had read this before, um, in addition to a lot of this stuff. And it's amazing because listen to the last couple of lines that we read. Um, right, that anyone who breaks Shabbat will die. So it's this, this fear of death. Wow. And uh, so it is written, you are to hold in awe, right? You have to hold the Shabbat in awe and the Mikdash in awe. The, the, the sanctuary, which we said is really another name for Shabbat. That point is called I. So we compared Shabbat to a point in the center of a square, in the center of a circle, right? So it's a point around which is a square, around which is a circle. And we said that the point is called I, which is also known as Shekhinah, because it is the divine personality in its fullest form. 
it is the manifestation of all the Sifirot in Shekhinah, the lowest. And on it rests that high concealed one, unrevealed. This is Yod Kevavke, and all is one. Unbelievable. Right? It's saying on the Shekhinah, Tiferet is resting, right? The, the male and the female Sefirot are getting together, and all is one. The conclusion of the verse, keep my Shabbats, and fear my sanctuary, which we said was also a reference to Shabbat, because Shabbat is like a palace in time, ends with, Ani Adonai, I am God. Indicates that Tiferet and Shekhinah are united, and it all merges back into the oneness. We quoted that, that quote last time of, and after all this mystical vision, you come back and who is sitting there? Just this little old man. Just me. Right? So after you have some kind of crazy mind trip, you come back to yourself, quote unquote, and you're just, just you sitting there. And all is one, somehow. Right? So the point that I didn't get to make last time, I think enough at least, is that this image that is being portrayed about Shabbat of the point around which is a square, around which is a circle, is a continuing pattern, I think. You're supposed to continue it outwards. This is a fractal. A fractal being one little portion of a much larger pattern. So a lot of people that have psychedelic visions are imagining patterns in which, let's say you have a point inside of a square, and outside the square is a circle. And then they see outside that circle, another square. And then outside that one, another circle. And it keeps expanding, expanding, expanding. Until the largest possible thing you could ever conceive. And that thing is where it comes. And it, you, you zoom out and you see, oh, where was I? I was inside that little point. And the very, very, very large somehow is contained in the very, very, very small. Because they're all relative. And somehow they are nested layers of reality. And I think the beauty of this is that it's supposed to be a meditation on how to transcend time because i think that's what shabbat is about we say uh, right we say that in bikat amazon the hachamim refer to olam haba the world to come as yom shekulo shabbat a world that is fully shabbat because what is shabbat all your work is done rashi says something to that effect it should be in your head in your head as if you finished everything. That's what Zen is. That's what being present in this moment is. There is no work to do. Effortless effort. <laughs> doing without doing. That's what it's about. So Shabbat is trying to tell you how do I live in a consciousness that is not constantly trying to do, but rather is this point in time. Always. Shabbat is this point that is representative of Shekhinah, the presence of this moment. And you can look into it and see the implications that it has for all of reality. That whole fractal pattern that expands outwards. But really all is one. Hmm. It's, it's that presence and that, that I, to me, that point in the center represents the presence of the now. That Shabbat is a microcosm of. It's hard to put it fully into words, but I, I think you guys can see a little bit where I'm getting at. So there's really a beautiful thing now. We're going to see this. So this by the way, who gave this whole chidush? This was the taya'ah. This was the Arab 
caravanner, the Arab uh, donkey driver. He gave this whole hadush to Rabbi Al-Azhar ben Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, right? to Rabbi Al-Azhar, the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and to Rabbi Abba. So let's see their reaction. Rabbi Al-Azhar and Rabbi Abba dismounted and kissed him. Right? And this idea of they dismounted, we we discussed um, last year, the four people that entered paradise, right? And they each had different experiences. Right before that story is a story of different types of enlightenment that people were having. It was in the air at the time. And Rabbi Hanan ben Zakai at one point dismounted his donkey to hear the exposition of Ma'asem al-Kava from Rabbi al-Azad ben Arach, who was driving the donkey behind him. So this idea of dismounting your donkey in order to hear the the wisdom of enlightenment is a common one throughout uh, t- uh you know Talmud and and Zoharic literature so they get off their their donkey and they kiss him this this driver they said all this wisdom in your hand and you are goading our donkeys behind us who are you he replied do not ask who i am rather let us go together Engaging in Torah. Let each one speak words of wisdom to illumine the way. Very mysterious. It reminds us of what? What do we read in last week's parasha? That Yaakov asks the angel, what is your name? And he says, Lama He says, why are you asking my name? And you can interpret that as I'm you, in a way. But this donkey driver says, let's just learn Torah. We don't, we don't need to discuss who I am. They said to him, who appointed you to go here goading donkeys? Why is this your job? He replied, Yod, the letter Yod, waged war with two letters, Kaf and Samech, to be bound together with me. Right? So the, the, the letter Yod wanted to be bound with him. So it waged the war against the letters Kaf and Samech. So the three letters, what do they spell? If you take kaf, yod, samech, you get the letter, the, the word kis, meaning pocket, representing materialism. If all three had joined together, then the wandering donkey driver would have been wealthy. But such was not the case. So he's saying, I gave up wealth. Kaf did not want to depart and be bound since it cannot survive for a moment anywhere else. Right. So the kaf didn't want to depart because it... Uh, wanted to remain at the head of the kiseh, of the divine throne. Um, and the samech that also didn't want to depart because it stands for the word somech, supporting. Um, so, but but what's the point here? Alone. Now you have the yod comes to him alone, came to me kissing and embracing me. <coughs> she wept with me saying, Beni, my son, what can I do for you? But look, I will ascend and fill myself with goodness, with hidden celestial splendid letters. Then I will come to you serving as your support. I will endow you with two letters higher than those that departed. Right? So it's amazing. I'm going up to the, get those, those splendid letters, like from the Kaf of Kiseh almost, from the Kiseh Kavod, from the, the divine throne. And also, I'm going to support you like the Samech, like Somech. So it's not fully a war. Um, I will endow you with two letters higher than those, but now I'm going to give you Two letters that are even better than kis. What's better than kis? What's better than materialism? Yesh, substance, which is celestial yod and sheen, as your treasury is filled with everything 
So my son, go and go donkeys. That is why I go like this. This is his explanation of why he's a donkey driver. So what is this idea now? He's replacing the, the key materialism with yesh, substance, composed of the letters yod and shin. Yesh designates the flow of emanation from chokhmah and bina, which is the ultimate substance, more valuable than wealth. Right? So that's what yesh actually means in Zoharic literature. It actually means this emanation flow down from chokhmah and bina. The gematria of yesh is 310. Um, and that's why it's said in, a, in one of these statements, in the world to come, the blessed Holy One will endow every righteous person with 310 worlds, as is written, so that I might endow those who love me with yesh, with substance, and fill their treasuries from Mishle. It's a beautiful pasuk. I'm going to give you yesh. What does yesh mean? Yesh means this substance, real substance, not materialism, but rather this divine emanation of a flow from the sefirot. And he's basically saying, I gave up the materialism in order to become the type of person who is a simple donkey driver, similar to a shepherd who had all the time in the world just to accept the divine flow of emanation from the sefirot in his life, just to be present with a simple job. And to be Azad and to be Abba rejoiced and wept. They said, go right. We will go the donkeys behind you. They're saying, we want, to, we want to do your job now because we don't feel it's kavod for you. He said to them, didn't I tell you it is the command of the king until the one driving donkeys arrives? Meaning until the Mashiach arrives. Mashiach is the one who's driving the donkeys. All right? Because we, we know from Zechariah, there's a famous pasuk. They said to him, but you haven't told us your name. The site you inhabit, what is it? They said, fine. You're not going to tell us your name. Where are you from at least? He replied, the site I inhabit is fine and lofty for me. A certain tower soaring in the air, grand and splendid. Those dwelling in this tower are the blessed Holy One, Akadosh Baruch Hu, and a certain poor person. This is where I reside, but I have gone into exile goading donkeys. So now what is he talking about here? What is this soaring tower in the air? It's a famous idea in the Gemara, but from a Zaharic perspective, it's represented by the letter Lamed, believe it or not. This tower in the air is Lamed because it's the tallest of all the letters. And really here, it represents the tower of Bina, the tower of this female or feminine sefirah, out of which all the rest of the sefirot are emanating. So he's saying, I live in Bina. That's what this guy is saying. I live in the sefirah of Bina. He's basically saying, this is my spiritual home. And who is this poor person that lives there with us? And the blessed, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Tif'eret. And the certain poor person is Shekhinah. Why is Shekhinah the poor person? Because um, she has no emanation of her own. Shekhinah is the lowest of the Sefirot. So she's the poorest. Nothing emanates from her. But she receives emanation from the other Sefirot. These two Sefirot are joined in the Tower of Binah. In the Lamed, right? So Shekhinah and, and Tif'eret are joined in Bina somehow. And according to uh, Todros Abu Lafia, um, the Lamed is composed of the letters Dalit and Vav. And in Kabbalah, Dalit represents Shekhinah because she is Dala, she is poor. Dal meaning poor. And Vav, whose numerical value is six, symbolizes Tif'eret because Tif'eret joins with the five Sefirot around him. Chesed, Givorah, Netzah, Hod, and Yesod. To form the sixfold Sephirotic torso, the three letters joined together spell Lod, 
Joe, I'm glad you're here. So he's basically hinting that he's from Lod in the physical plane, but on the spiritual level, he's saying, I dwell in Bina. And in Bina, alongside me, are Tiferet and Shekhinah. Right? And the donkey driver is saying, on the material plane, he lives in Lod. So Joe, maybe you were in connection with, uh, with this donkey driver when you were there. Um, okay. So I think that's really interesting, yeah, the way he good. responds. He said you failed to notice him. Next time you go back, inshallah. Um, all right, so he's saying, I've gone into exile goading donkeys, but but now uh, that, that's where I used to live. Now I'm in exile. But he says, this is, where, this is where I reside, but I've gone into exile. So who knows what that really means, that he's now in exile from that. Rabbi Abba Rabbi Al-Azad gazed at him. He had flavored his words for them as sweet as manna and honey. Right, he, his words were so beautiful and so sweet to them. They were like man, and we know about the man. It says, The taste of the man was like sweet as honey. They said to him, If you tell us the name of your father, we will kiss the dust of your feet. He said, Why? It is not my habit to boast of Torah, right? There's a saying that you're not supposed, if you're the son of a rabbi, you're not supposed to sign your name as. Uh, Moshe ben Rabbi, whatever, just say Moshe. But my father's dwelling was in the great ocean. He says, if you must know, who's my dad? My dad lived in the great ocean. He was a fish, circumnavigating the vast ocean from one end to the other. So grand and splendid, ancient of days, he would swallow all the other fish in the ocean, then spew them out alive, thriving, filled with all goodness of the world. So strong, he could swim the ocean in one moment. He shot me out like an arrow from the hand of the mighty of a mighty warrior, secreting me in that sight I described. Then he returned to his sight, disappearing into the ocean. Basically, he's saying, My father put me in Bina. My father secreted me into Bina. Because who is his father on the spiritual level? This is my own interpretation. His father is Chokhmah, the father of Bina. Is Chokhmah. <laughs> so, so basically he's saying that's who his spiritual father is. But by the way, just like there was a hint to his physical place of living, which was Lod, there's also a hint to his physical father in these words. And how do you say fish in the Aramaic? The word is Nuna. Um, so Nuna, swimming in the ocean. Um, and sephirotically, the fish is Yesod, swimming in the ocean, divinity of divinity, right? Yesod is the divine phallus. So it makes sense that he would associate that with his father, right? It's Yesod. Uh, but also at the same time, it seems to be something that secreted something into Binas. I think it's also Hukmah. And he said, like an arrow. Um, and the point being here, um, Nuna sounds... A lot like Rav Hamnuna. So we're going to see now, what is he going to say? Um, Rabbi Al-Azad contemplated his words. He said, you are the son of the Holy Lamp. You are the son of Rav Hamnuna Sava, son of the radiance of Torah, and you are goading donkeys behind us? Right, so he figured it out. He figured out within the code that Nuna was really a, a hint at, physically at least, Rav Hamnuna. Um, and he says, you're the son of Butzina Kadisha. Usually it's a reference to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but here it's used for Rav HaMenuna. Rav HaMenuna was a Babylonian teacher um, living in the 3rd century. 
uh, and the Zohar assumes that he died in the time of, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Um, and the donkey driver, of course, hinted that that was his father by saying Nuna fish. Um, and very this Rav Menuna is really a very well-respected rabbi, especially in the Zohar. Um, I'll read one more section here before we end. Um, they both wept together, kissed him, and went on. Um, they said to him, it pleases our master, let him reveal his name to us. He opened saying, so they, they continued to ask about his name. He says, ben ben This verse has been established, which is fine, but this verse alludes to supernal mysteries of Torah. Ben ben appears on behalf of mystery of wisdom, the concealed word, and the name prevails, son of a living man, Sadiq, righteous one, vitality of the worlds, master of deeds, master of all action, of all celestial powers, for all emerge from him. He is Adonai Sevaot, Lord of hosts, insignia of all his hosts, distinguished and supreme. He's called Master of Deeds. All right, so look how, how much depth there is to his answer of who are you and who is your father um, and what's your name? And basically he's hinting, oh, uh, he's basically hinting that his, oh, Dr. Nassi, you're trying to speak? Uh, okay, so basically he's hinting that he is part of God. That's the way that I'm reading this. And we can, I, I still have to read a little bit more in depth into this before we do it. We continue next week. But I think this very much is why I love Jewish mysticism, why I love mysticism in general, why I love starting the class with Zen and ending with this, wow. because I really do believe it's all connected. Nice transition. It's all the same, right? It's all the same where whether you want to talk about it as from a Zen perspective, it's all just here. It's all just this. And we walk through the gate and we see I was the Joker this whole time. Or if you want to talk about it as God is my father and he created this situation where I can be. But at the end of the day, I am part of him. And I was always a part of him. These are all beautiful ways of saying the same thing. You know, Mikey, yeah. for, not for this discussion now, but yeah. out of curiosity, connecting the Zen with, with the, you know, with Zohar, TBGB, it just blows my mind that the 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 tower of power on my list is the Rambam. Yeah. And he was like, he was sort of anti-heebie-jeebie. Mm -hmm. How come? You know, it's a topic that's a great question. About. Yeah, and his, you know what's amazing, I.D.? Yeah. The son of the Rambam was a huge mystic. Really? The B. Abraham Ben Rambam was a loved Sufi mysticism. So maybe he took that he took that diversion from that from his father's stand. Yeah. Right. Go figure. And I don't think there's something anything wrong with that. I we love Harambam for who he was. We love it to be Abraham but Harambam for who he was. And everybody's kind of celebrating a different element. It would be terrible yeah. if everybody was a mystic who would go to work on Monday, you know? Like <laughs> right, right. pretty no. tough. Not you, that you, need, you, need all, you need all flavors, yeah. Exactly, 100%. But we we definitely got to discuss that more because there's a lot to talk about with that question. Okay, okay great. I love you guys, really. What Have a great week, time. Mikey. Oh. Good night, guys. So much, Hanna. Uh, ID, forgive me if I said anything uh, improper. Improper? What do you mean? You're I love you. I, I feel yeah. better if I put you on the spot. What year? Da, da, da. Who cares? I don't let age define me. That's right. That's right. And, and we're, we're, we're only here passing through. That's right. I do. We love you so much. I love you guys. And I'm going to make a cameo one night. We're going to come over there. And I after this, we're going to have like a toast. 
Amen. Amen. I'm done. We'll bring some red wine. Right. That's right. When we and, we and then we'll bow down. We'll do all the things that we have to do. <laughs> I love you. All right, guys. No class next week. Um, All right. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. Okay. Miracles, miracles galore. Amen. All right. I'll see you later, Mikey. Bye-bye.